G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. It's estimated there's as many as 360 million Christians around the world facing high levels of persecution or discrimination. Just reflect on that for a moment. 360 million believers. That's one in seven Christians worldwide. What's disturbing is that Christian persecution is higher today than any other time in modern history. Nearly 6,000 Christians have been killed for faith-related reasons, and more than 5,000 churches or other Christian buildings attacked just in this past year. New stories are coming to light every week. And what's just as disturbing is that in some nations, Christians are forced underground. Believers meet in secret. The Bible is banned, and the risk of arrest, imprisonment, and even execution is real. This is where our conversation is going today, an update on things that are going on around the world and how we in Australia might respond to some of those things. Mike Gore is CEO of Open Doors in Australia. Mike, a special welcome back to 2020. Neil, it's good to be back. He's one of my favourite radio shows to speak on, so thanks for having us along. Well, Mike, let's talk, first of all, about... uh, Let's come to some of the end uh, uh, issues that are involved here. The thought of getting God's word into the hands of persecuted believers. So many of us have got easy access on our mobile device. We've got dusty old Bibles sitting on the bookshelf. Uh, Sometimes we never pick them up. And yet there's such a call for these around the world. Getting God's word word into persecuted Christian hands. uh, What's the what's the issue here? Look, it's, it's one of the, um, you know, one of the things I always loved about Andrew who started the Ministry of Open Doors was famous for saying nobody has a right to have two Bibles, Neil, when there are many Christians who do not possess one. And I think for us there can be this really gap, as you sort of said, between the, our experience here in Western nations where you can have as many translations as you want on your phone, um, but there are some people around the world who, who would do anything to possess a Bible. Or what I find uniquely sort of... Um, interesting is that in so many ways, Neil, in many of the nations that Open Doors works, these persecuted nations where Christians are really heavily oppressed for their faith, it's almost as though the governments or the persecutors have more respect for this one, even one line of the scriptures than I do. They see that this book has um, an ability to transform lives, to be the living word of God that brings change to community. And so that's one of the biggest things is that they're pushing back against what the Bible brings into people's lives. In some sense, I've thought this through for many years now, Mike. If there are persecutors of Christians, talking about uh, evil dictatorship-type governments that recognise that the Bible is such a subversive book, 
that it's amazing that Western governments who deal with some of these dictatorships haven't realised that if you actually uh, increase the promotion of how people are able to have access to the Bible, that actually may be the solution to some of the really dreadful persecution that people suffer in general under dictatorships. I wonder why no one's ever recognised that before, Mike. It is just a very, very valid and interesting question. It's it's um, one of the ones that I'm not sure I actually have a conclusive or good answer for for you, but it really is an interesting element. I think in Western nations, to be honest, Neil, one of the biggest things that we should be pushing for our own lives as Christians is to increase um, our kind of focus on Bible reading and the transformation that comes with sitting in the Scriptures because I think that's in many Western nations an all-time low for Christians um, in a time-poor, heavily kind of... Um, pressurized lifestyle we actually need to make sure that as christians we are reading our bibles interesting isn't it Uh, in a nation like north korea and i know you're dealing with north korean issues uh frequently uh but there if you're even in possession of the bible you can be uh, you can be executed in front of your family Uh, the bible is seen as a really really a subversive book in a nation like north korea that does indicate there's something in the Bible that maybe is very valuable for people to know. Yeah, look, in that totalitarian state that you're talking about is North Korea, the only thing that North Koreans are permitted to worship is the nation's leader, Kim Jong-un. Um, Bibles, as you said, they're banned, and those found with the possession of one will face imprisonment, torture, and in some cases, even death. And so the, the one of the other little-known elements of North Korea is that if you're caught with a Bible, the, the other, up to three generations of your family are also imprisoned. So they may not be Christian. It's one of the reasons why it's so costly to become a Christian in a country like North Korea, because your choice, Neil, will affect, if you are caught, will affect three generations of your family who may not be Christian, but because of your actions, they will be placed into labor camps alongside you. I don't want to really move on from here except to say three generations, Mike, and listeners will be hearing that because if one generation has the Bible and they pass on those values, there's a certain spirituality that is captured by those generations. But if you're if you're the dictator and you want to outlaw the Bible, you're thinking that people in those generations have been infected by some sort of poison. I wonder if you've got any thoughts here, Mike. Uh, The thought that on one side you might say you're influenced for righteousness. The other side will say you're infected with poison. Depends on which side you're on as to how you view the value of what you find in the Bible. It's actually actually really interesting. I mean, I'm sure that that view and that lens, Neil, exists in, in a large number of the cases. There is also the element where it's saying, hey, we want to make sure that you are so scared to make this decision because if you make it in your court, whether your family are Christian or not, right, we want you to know that your actions will result in often their death. And so it becomes an incredibly weighty decision. I remember spending time with a beautiful North Korean woman. And when I was um, spending time with her, she was 69 years old. Her name was Hei Wu. She had survived nine North Korean labor camps. Now, her daughter, the age of 21, had starved to death under their house um, hold roof from the famine in North Korea. I mean, she had had a horrific life before time in camp. But as I was talking to her, she said, I remember growing up as a child and 
as a Christian and knowing I couldn't share it with my family. But as I sort of thought back over life, I remember mum would walk around the Christian table kind of rubbing sort of this necklace she was wearing and muttering to herself. And she always thought that was a strange thing, but it wasn't until her mum had passed away years later that she actually realised and it dawned on her that her mum was a Christian too, Neil. And what she was doing as she walked around the table, she was praying. But here is a great example where two people, a mother and a daughter in the same home, share the same faith, but they're unable to ever tell the other one. It goes to show that there's some very important things we in Australia need to learn about the depth of faith in Christ uh, that these secret believers have when you can't even share your faith within your own family and yet you recognise there's power in those Bible words, there's power in those gospel stories, the power to free you from the things that bind you and imprison you in this world. Uh, those are powerful lessons we learn, Mike. Absolutely. I think it's one of the other great sort of elements of the Scriptures is they offer people freedom. Now, it's a freedom in Christ. It's an assurance of salvation. But in countries even like India, it's a freedom from oppressive systems like the caste system. And so, again, governments, whether it's China or India, either their um, desire to eradicate the Bible is because they realize the Bible offers people an alternate pathway out of control and towards freedom. And that's one of the most terrifying things for very controlling-based governments or other religions or cultures. Now, it's obviously not every nation where there is persecution, where there is a denial of even having access to the Scriptures, uh, because we know that uh, there are Bible apps that get banned uh, that get blocked in some nations. But when we talk the sheer numbers, 360 million persecuted believers around the world, uh, lots of listeners will be aware of the uh, 50 nations on the World Watch list that comes from Open Doors at the beginning of each year. These sorts of things are real. They're not imagined. Uh, these sorts of numbers are incredible. Uh, so any idea in there, Mike, about out of that 360 million, how many might not have the sort of access to a Bible that we take for granted? Well, one of the things just to, just to highlight there is that's 360 million, Neil, that experience high levels of persecution. So on our list, the World Watch list, you know, there's high and there is medium and there is, you know, low-level persecution. That's 360 million Christians who experience a severe high level of persecution, one in seven an incredibly large amount. As far as accessibility to Bibles go, I mean, in 1955, one of the key elements of Open Doors ministry was couriering or taking Bibles to believers who couldn't otherwise access themselves. Today, with the advent of technology and the internet, accessibility to the Scriptures is much more attainable. However, it also is much more traceable. I think we often fail to remember that a digital footprint, sort of our tracks that we leave online, they are easy to follow. And so within that number, there is actually still a great need for the distribution of physical or non-sort of internet-connected Bibles. So are we back to those days, Mike, where Bibles have to be shipped into nations, sometimes in a secretive way so that they're not detected, which gives freedom for people in those nations, the ability to share from the scriptures, to appreciate and drink from the biblical wells of wisdom and truth, 
and to connect with God uh, because they can't be traced. It's a book that can't be traced. It's a digital footprint that can. That's exactly right. I mean, and it's a book that can be found. And so it's one of those things that no matter which angle you come at it from, Neil, it is a risky book to be in possession of. And uh, he was speaking to a, a friend recently who's based in Brisbane now, living on a protection visa, um, was a oil rig, a senior petroleum engineer for the Iranian government and would have, as a Christian, former Muslim, would have a Bible that he would cover in newspaper, the cover, so you couldn't tell what book it was. But his assistant um, found it one day, opened the cover, took a photo and sent it to his managers. They emailed him immediately and they said, when you're back from the rig, you need to come and see us. And the moment he got back from the oil rig, they turned the computer screen around and they said, what's this a picture of? Is your book, is it? And he said, yeah, that's my book. And they said, is it a Bible? He said, yes. And they said, are you a Christian? And he said, I thought I should answer it in a good sort of a Muslim way. So he said, look, I was born into a Muslim family. And they said, that's not what we're asking you. Are you a Christian? And he said, in that moment, he felt the Lord say, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. And he said, yes, I'm a Christian. And the people in the company pushed him a piece of white paper. And they said, you need to write on this piece of paper that you have a personal problem at home that makes you unfit to do your job. He said, I don't. I'm fine. And they said, we're going to ask you again. You need to write that you have a personal issue at home that makes you unfit to do your job. He said, well, look, you're my manager. Um, I will do what you say. And so he wrote it on the piece of paper, handed it back to them, and on the spot was fired from his role. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Mike Gore. Mike is CEO at Open Doors in Australia. We are talking about the persecuted believers around the world. The mind boggles when you recognize that one in seven Christian believers is under some high-level persecution, numbering 360 million believers around the world. 1-800-316-316. Mike, before we move on, let's take a call. Anne is in Labrador in Queensland. Hello, Anne. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, it's so great to hear my wife, Mike. Listen, I'm sorry that I can't always donate to you because I do Bible live and I have pension now. But the greatest thing is I get your little prayer book and I'm so, and it's so great that I can use it to pray for those people who are persecuted over ECs. Yeah, and so great to hear from you. Anne, wonderful comment there. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts for Anne? Hey, Anne, how are you going? Good to hear from you. It's, uh, yeah. You know, I actually love hearing that the prayer guide, Neil, man, hearing Anne, Anne talk about it, it is one of the best sort of parts of what we do, being able to send things like that out um, to people like yourself, Anne, who can pray through it, pray for people. And, um, and as an encouragement, the amount of times that I have been in different parts of the world meeting with persecuted believers, one lady from Eritrea spent two and a half years locked in a metal shipping container and she said, it was the prayers of believers around the world that formed the crutch on which I walked after her beating. And so, you know, people may, you may never meet these people, but they definitely feel the impact of your prayers. Yeah. 
And thank you so much for a wonderful insight, comment. Uh, and from Labrador, our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Mike Gore is our guest, the CEO at Open Doors in Australia, a prayer guide resourcing the body of Christ here. Uh, open Doors, you do more than just uh, talk to me on the radio every now and then. You've got a whole team that's working in your office, Mike. But the, the thought of the prayer guide, this actually informs you in your prayer rather than just say, God bless all those persecuted believers. You've got statistics on what's happening in nation by nation on the World Watch list. Uh, give us some insights into that prayer guide and how it actually works. Yeah, look, it's, it's statistics, but it's also the beautiful thing about the prayer guide, Neil, is that it, it makes it personable. There are individuals that you can pray for and and really focus on in your prayer. I know even just recently there was a story from Central Asia about a person called Ruslan. Now that family um, poses a great threat. You know, Ruslan's mother was um, aggressively and publicly opposed because they are Christian. And since coming to faith, that they've endured, I mean, after their decision, years and years and years of persecution, his home is routinely vandalized. The windows are always broken again and again. His daughter was beaten up at school. And more than that, classmates have threatened to burn her face with acid. I mean, this is incredibly difficult environment and circumstances to follow Jesus. In one village, clerics had made life impossible for new Christians. Converts were told that your children can no longer attend school. Your cattle can't eat the grass of the livestock for us. And you cannot have water to irrigate your fields. I mean, it is just such a difficult thing. You know, in these prayer guides, we get to sort of meet people like this, pray for them and realize that these are real people who are waking up even today, waking up going, how can I serve Jesus despite inc- incredible opposition? And so that's what I love about the prayer guide. It's not just a stats sort of statistics thing. It's a personal thing that allows us to, by name, cover people in prayer. Let's talk about people who are in these very difficult circumstances under persecution. And as you say, uh, they're just not allowed to do anything. Even their cattle can't eat the grass that might be owned by someone of a different religious persuasion. Mm. If you are going to remain strong in your faith, if you are going to be sustained under that sort of persecution, you do have to have access to the Bible. Either you're going to own your own or somebody that you know has one and they, in some sense, encourage you and feed you with that biblical foundation so that your faith can grow. But not everybody has this Bible. So is it the case, Mike, the more Bibles you can get into these areas, the more people have opportunity to flourish in their faith and therefore can be sustained in persecution? Exactly right. And I think that's... um the, the Bible is, it's the way it's treated, Neil, in these countries is so interesting and different. Again, in Central Asia, I remember meeting with um, a believer who said, we look at reading our Bible as our opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden every day. They said, how can you not wake up and want to read that book? And as we're talking, he, you know, in this part of the world, it is, illegal to preach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. In fact, you, you can be sentenced or charged with religious extremism and sent to prison for three years. I had driven on the outside of a prison where a pastor was currently being held because they had caught or been caught with books on prayer in their car. And now, as I was talking to this pastor, his eight-year-old grandson was there. 
and he started to talk to him and he told his grandson, hey, tell Mike what you like about the Bible. And so he did. And then he said, all right, tell um, Mike all of the books of the Bible in order from Genesis to Revelation. Eight years old and he did. Hmm. Then he said, now pick five books at random from the Old Testament, five from the New Testament, and tell Mike how many chapters are in each book. And he did. Eight years old, right? And then he went on and on and on. Because for these people, not only do they read them, but they commit them to memory because they realize that when in all likelihood they will end up in prison, well, they need to be able to rely on their knowledge of the scriptures right, to drive them into a deeper relationship with Christ. And that is sort of devotion as eight years old and understanding of the scriptures married to not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge of Jesus and relationship. Unbelievably inspiring. Mike, it's not always easy to talk about how you might compare your own faith to someone who's in these uh, persecuted environments. But as you're sharing those sorts of stories and we think of our own kids and our own grandkids and we talk about, we might be thinking about how the children's church at our local church is actually leading a children's ministry. And some of the sorts of things that you're sharing there if we were going to compare ourselves, might show that we fall way short. When you're sharing about the persecuted church, when you're sharing around churches, uh, does it have any effect like that? That people go, wow, we need to actually pick up our game because our faith is fairly shallow compared to some of theirs. Yeah, look, I think it's uh, one of the things I'm really careful of is to not sort of say necessarily that we are falling short. I think most people here in Australia wake up and they think, how can we best serve God? How can we best run the greatest sort of kids' ministry or children's church or whatever it might be? Well, what I think we can best learn from the persecuted church, almost as though they are spiritual mentors, is how to value the ministry. Right. So, for instance, in Central Asia, as I said before, you can be sentenced. If you're called with a colouring-in sheet or a kids' church resource, you can be sent to prison. And as I was talking to my friend, who was a senior pastor of a church on my first trip, well, the second trip, he no longer was. And I thought, what's happened? And at the end of our time in the service, the kids were asked to stand up and leave, and they sort of secretly ushered out, and he followed them. And I talked to him later, and he said, Mike, it's easy to become a master when you're a servant. But to become a servant when you've been a master, it's almost impossible. It's what made Jesus so beautiful. He said, I've stepped down from running our church to run the kids' ministry because he said, if anyone is going to go to jail, it's me. And he said, pointing to, again, his grandson, he said, look, you look at often look at kids' ministry as sort of a glorified babysitting service, whereas he sort of pointed at his grandson and said, that right there, Mike, is the single most valuable and important investment I can make into the future of faith in our nation and I'll go to jail for it every day of the week. Because he said the future of faith, it falls onto the shoulders of those who follow us, not the ones who have gone before us. He said too often we look to the older people like himself, he said, to talk about faith. No, no, no. Our investment should be in young people because they're the next generation of the church. They're the next sort of future of the church. And so I think less about where we fall short and more about sort of redefining and saying for any person listening who's a school teacher, who's a children's church leader, who's a parent for that matter, you know, grandparent, hey, look, the investment, don't ever undervalue or underestimate the investment we're making into young people. And I think that's what I love about the persecuted church. It shouldn't be used as a tool to convict us 
make us feel worse about ourselves that's actually incredibly inspiring that allows us to truly understand the value of the elements that maybe over time we now start to feel a little bit routine or habitual or even a bit of a burden at times because there's so much organizing. No, no, particularly with kids ministry, Neil, or youth, young adult, you know, they are the future of the church and their single most important investment that people all over the world will go to jail for every day of the week. Uh, Mike, let me, as we get into this part of our conversation, let me ask you about this extremism that brings persecution of Christians. Is it on the rise around the world? It is, unfortunately, yeah. So sadly, I, I think, let me just sort of have a bit of a look at Nigeria to sort of illustrate this point, Neil. But sadly, out to 2022 World Watch List, and for the listeners, they know that's the, the ranking of the 50 most difficult countries for Christians it is still predominantly, the most difficult are predominantly in the hands of extremism. And so it shows, the results show the persecution against Christians is increasing. And as I said with Nigeria, I mean, a thousand more Christians were killed for their faith last year than the year before. There's a thousand more Christians were detained. 600 more churches were attacked or closed. And in specific relation to Nigeria, the reports show that Nigeria it has four out of five martyrs worldwide. I mean, that's a huge number of Christians being killed in Nigeria alone. China has three out of five of the church attacks. And as, as you've mentioned before, Afghanistan, I mean, North Korea was the number one most difficult country on earth for two decades, basically. And just in the last year, Afghanistan had overtaken them. And so, yes, we're seeing an increase in the impact of extremism and its effect on Christians the world over. Can't help but reflect here for a moment, Mike, when you're talking about a nation like Nigeria, because uh, in one news report you might be reading about some of the biggest churches, Christian churches in the world, and amazing moves of the Holy Spirit, uh, people coming to Christ in, uh, in hundreds of thousands and millions. And yet we're hearing about Nigeria being a hotbed of Christian persecution. And so when I think of Nigeria, I'm thinking of that nation there in uh, in uh, Western Africa. And uh, to the north, you've got Islamic people. To the south, you've got Christians. And there's a bit of a dividing line. Does a lot of the persecution happen along the border where everyone mixes together and you've got this sort of oil and water don't necessarily mix easily? How do you describe what's going on in Nigeria? Because, yes, we'll read wonderful Christian testimonies from there too. It's, it's a great, it's a great uh, delineation, Neil, in that you're right. The southern part of Nigeria is historically and at the moment very Christian and the northern part is very Islamic. And often on that kind of intersection is where you'll find horrific persecution at the hands of extremist groups, um, Boko Haram, uh, the Falani herdsmen. Uh, These are kind of tribes or um, terrorist groups and organizations that really wage a huge toll on Christians. However, for some of your listeners, and I know yourself will realize, that just recently there was an attack in Nigeria where many Christians were killed. The thing that made that incredibly unique was that it was in the southern part of the country and that historically has not happened and so what we're seeing here is almost like a crossing of that 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 intersectional region and persecution now starting to kind of bleed into that southern part of nigeria and that is an incredibly worrying trend for christians in that part of the world 
Nigeria is number seven on your World Watch list. There's a bunch of nations on there. Let me just rattle through the top ten for listeners, and then we might touch on some of those, and some of those might come to mind. You might have a story or two to tell, Mike, mm. but number one is Afghanistan, and for the first time in who knows how long. But the second is North Korea. Number three, Somalia. Number four, Libya. Number five, Yemen. Number six, Eritrea. Number seven is Nigeria that we just talked about. Number eight is Pakistan. Number nine is Iran. Number 10 is India. I've got to ask you about Afghanistan and all of the developments that have been going on there since the Taliban uh, just basically uh, swept into power as uh, Western forces and allied forces withdrew from Afghanistan. That put Christians under huge uh, persecution and all their details were well known then to their new rulers. Thoughts about uh, developments in Afghanistan, Mike? Yeah, look, it's impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. I mean, absolutely impossible. Leaving Islam is considered shameful. And believers are often disowned or, in the worst of instances, killed by family members. With the Taliban's takeover increased um, the persecution of Christians. And you said many were known. They're on lists and people were sort of going from house to house. But at the same time, in the middle of this crisis, there was also an incredibly um, huge refugee crisis, right? Because so many people, Muslim and Christian, were trying to flee the change and in control to the Taliban. And so what we're finding in Afghanistan is that um, the effects of COVID are lingering because of the population sort of dispersing um, refugees and internally displaced people. There's a a humanitarian crisis of which Christians are caught up in. And so for Afghanistan, there is an incredible amount of um, persecution towards Christians but it coincides or collides with a rapidly changing fear of, you know, refugees and famine and COVID. And so it is a perfect storm for um, incredible amounts of oppression for Christians. Mike, let me ask you something very special here that I know is at the heart of what you do in Open Doors, because sometimes when you hear about really extreme persecution, and there is a need at different times for there to be rescue of people who are under persecution, it's not necessarily the open doors uh, ethos to actually get people out of trouble, but actually help them to be sustained in their trouble. Now, you can probably describe that a whole lot better than I can, but Open Doors, you're really about sustaining the the remnant uh, in some senses of the Christian church in some very, very difficult circumstances. Give us your insights into what you try to do uh, to help sustain those believers. Well, persecution is a consequence of successful Christianity, Neil. I think that's what we often fail to realize. I mean, reading your Bible, every instance of persecution, whether uh, was was always and only ever linked to either a public profession of faith uh, a public outworking of faith or an outworking of faith in community. So you come forward 2,000 odd years, well, nothing's changed. Wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. And so in many ways, the World Watch list, it's almost like it's a sign of where the gospel is alive and active. It's coming at a great cost. But in so many ways, persecution, it has always been the motor of the gospel. Persecution is what catalyzed the Great Commission. And what's so humbling is that God used Saul to breathe life into the Great Commission and then in his infinite mercy converted him to Paul and built the church. So God used both Saul and Paul to build the church. 
so for us as an organization and unlike other charities, we don't sort of say, hey, we're here to end persecution. No, no, we're here to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we condone or agree with physical abuses or human rights abuses, not at all. But we're saying to people, hey, as they follow Jesus, there's always going to be an invoker response. So how can we truly listen to them and provide for them in a way that allows them to stay and serve Christ the best they can? And so for all of our listeners and people even wanting to be involved in the Bible Project this year, it's it's ensuring that you're investing into the ongoing advancement of the gospel. I remember a brother in Iran said to me, he was in prison, and he said, had I not been persecuted, the gospel would have never reached this prison. And that is a powerful statement, Neil, saying that God used this so I could come here and share the gospel. And so that's one of the most beautiful elements of Open Doors. We're not here to end it. We're here to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and continue to shine brightly for Christ. Wonderful stories. And when a soul is one, I mean, sometimes we believers, uh, we will give into an evangelistic campaign and then assume that when a soul is one, uh, everything is wonderful. Uh, But there are consequences of that. And as you say, Mike, persecution, a consequence of successful Christianity and where there is an explosion of faith in Christ, that's going to bring persecution because the tide of faith steps on toes. And uh, when you're stepping on toes, that's just not a nice little quaint way of saying you've upset someone. Some people are upset to the point that they will be willing to take your life for that. That's the reality, isn't it? It is. But I think to contextualize it for us here, you know, you know, COVID and the season we've just walked through, Neil, has been... And an incredibly unique ability to empathize with the persecuted church. I mean, there's a big difference between sympathy and empathy. COVID allowed us to sort of say, hey, what, is it, what does it look like for a Christian who can't go to church or must worship in a home church environment? And so we all of a sudden were able to learn how to empathize with people around the world who share our faith, but not our freedom. And I think that made it a beautifully um, important part and journey of the last couple of years. But, but I look forward to that. And I think if I look around society and culture today, one of the biggest lessons we need to learn is that over that time, and as fear kind of pressed in on us, one of the great misnomers of the statement, persecution is a uh, consequence of successful Christianity, one of the great misinterpretations is that what I look around in Western culture is often we chase persecution over Jesus. Right? So we can often find ourselves saying needlessly inflammatory things on social media, provocative statements, and then putting our hands up or throwing our hands up in the air saying we're being persecuted. The thing I've learned from the persecuted church is that yes, persecution is a consequence of successful Christianity, but successful Christianity is best found in our sole pursuit of Christ. So it means when you share the gospel, you share it empathetically and kindly and graciously. It still elicits a response. But a misinterpretation of that statement can find us here in Australia and other Western nations chasing persecution over Jesus. Does that that make sense? It makes sense. To pick up on something you're sharing there, uh, because so many listening to our conversation today will have related very carefully and closely to what you were sharing, that when we were locked down during the COVID pandemic, 
when we couldn't worship, uh, when we're seeing images on our screen of, uh, of heavy-handed governments, heavy-handed police, uh, when we were mandated to do things that we were against what we felt were our human rights uh, for freedom, the sorts of things that we experienced, there's, there's something there that enlarges, but this is what Christian believers are putting up with on a daily basis, and it doesn't go away with a, an end of a pandemic. It continues on while those extremist powers are putting them under their thumb. That's something, Is did you discover that? Did you find that was the case through the pandemic time, Mike? Uh, has Australian attitudes a little bit changed when people recognise that, oh, I have experienced something a little along the lines of what others experience? Well, it only enlarges if you allow it to, right? Because that's the great crossroads, Neil, is that there are some people who will allow the, the change and the fear to enlarge, and then there are other people who will either control or run from it. And it's in those moments that you can actually find yourself um, fighting for the wrong things, in my view. Or you can be standing up for things that are misinterpreted as faith issues, but actually moral or societal issues. And so COVID, yes, you know, I always thought we would see um, a great kind of um, growth of the church in, in a sense of nominational patriotism, so that, that kind of passion we have around denominations will become less because actually as we're forced into homes, we'll probably ingest information from a greater variety of churches. I thought we would see um, a drop in dependence on like fairly standard pastoral services because as pastors and churches were no longer able to access um, their congregations, we had to figure out ways to sort of interact with people again. That's how the persecuted church works. And we would see a drop in the number of church-going Christians in Australia. And that's because in so many ways, and me included, Christianity or church attendance can become a habitual thing or you know, based out of routine. And so when that was taken out and you found something else to do with your Sunday mornings and have coffee and watch it online, the notion of sort of getting back to church, we always thought as a ministry would be a sluggish kind of pathway back. But again, in the persecuted church, we see a church that is not based on numbers. It's based on courage and, and sort of resolve and a trust in God that despite you know suffering, it's not a betrayal of the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel. And so this is the kind of three elements that we thought would see echoed in the Australian church. We have in many ways, but the future of the church is bright. And my hope is that we can look back on the season and realize that it shaped our faith. It taught us how to hold on to Christ when everything else felt everything else felt insecure. We're encouraged that it's God who's building his church. And so when we have a, an issue that we're up against ourselves, we're under our own little bit of pressure, uh, that ought to shake us out of our complacency. And while we hear of at times when the church is growing, as you said a little earlier, uh, persecution, a consequence of successful Christianity, as God is growing his church, there will be those who are not thrilled with that. Uh, people might even align that with the spiritual battle that we sometimes talk about, uh, a battle between uh, light and darkness, uh, God and the devil. Uh, you know, you could talk about uh, characterizing a battle like that in a spiritual sense here, Mike. Any thoughts here for the spiritual battle that the Bible teaches us so well that is going on, even though we can't see it? Yeah, look, I think that one of the great challenges we face is to make sure we don't over-spiritualize it. I think that we live in a fallen world. I, I look around and I go, there is a moral decay within society, right? But at the same time, 
What we need to do is not figure out how do you arrest or save that trend, but how do you follow Christ as the path continues? You know, the, the scriptures talk about a lamp unto your feet. And I remember a friend said to me, I always thought that was a strange scripture, because why would you put the lamp at your feet? Why, like, why not hold it in the air? And he said, I realized that it was because if I could see the whole path, I'd never walk it. And so for us as Christians here in Western nations, in the face of some of those spiritual battles of light and dark, our job is simply to figure out how to take the next step, right, one step after another, forward into a more trust-filled, courageous relationship with Christ. And I think that um, is, again, one of the beautiful pictures of the persecuted church. They walk step by step. They trust that the lamp at their feet will ultimately lead them on the path, and it's a journey that will make them great and shape them. And I think for us as Christians, and for me personally, I want to see the path. I want to know where I'm going. I want to be in control of it. But learning to look to and learn from the persecuted church shows me that my job is to just trust the Lord and take one step after the next. When moral decay gets to a point where believers are being imprisoned and even executed for their faith, uh, I guess you've got to recognise that, yes, seasons do change. And if God is the one building his church, then seasons will change. And it's the equipping of believers to be a part of that change that's important. That brings us back to having access to the Word of God, having access to the Bible. Uh, and sometimes we can think of those issues of faith being fairly simplistic, but the issues in the Bible actually prepare believers to actually be a part of the transformation of their own community and transformation of their nation. So we can't underestimate the power of the Bible in that, Mike. Of course, the living and enduring Word of God always... You know, people often ask me the notion about suffering or you see extremism. And I'm like, hey, you know, our more moral decay for that matter. I'm like, until something that happens that is not like referenced in some way in the Bible, I'm good. I'm okay because I know that the Lord is in control and that it's nothing that we haven't walked through before. It may look differently, but actually the notion of moral decay, the notion of imprisonment and cost of following Christ, all of these, Neil, they are just repeated throughout the Bible. I had a dinner with a friend last night and we talked about one of the increasing sort of politicalizations of the gospel. I said, isn't it funny that not one of the disciples ended up being a politician? But it's like there's, there's this real element where I'm like, let's look to in the scriptures, let's learn from them, let's understand the value they have. It's why, again, this end of year campaign for us, it's so important. The Bible is crucial and we have so many here. You know, why, why should we have two when some have none, let's, let's do what we can to just serve and support the global church. You've got your end of financial year appeal happening, uh, the Bible appeal, spread the word, give Bibles to those who need it most. Uh, I noted on your website, Mike, uh, there's a sort of a, a donation suggestion there, and I'm sure that anyone who makes a donation of any amount will be much appreciated, but you've got a suggestion, I think, on your website saying a $200 donation. Let me ask you, what would that donation of $200 do? Is that some? Is there some special focus for it? Yeah, so we still get about $20 a Bible. So that's 10 Bibles is our goal. Um, and to ask people, look, hey, how many can you do, basically? We want to spread the word. Open Doors, for the, last year was 40-year anniversary of something called Project Pearl. It's where we delivered a million Bibles onto the shore of China in 1981. I mean, an incredibly um, transformative kind of project. And what I loved, what Australia, Australia was part of that back in the 80s. You know, we had so many people here 
serving and supporting the delivery of that project. We couldn't tell anyone about it until after it was done. It's something that has made open doors uniquely open doors. And I'm like, it's what we'll get to do again, even this financial year. Hey, look, invest into the scriptures because we'll get them there. And more than that, it'll change lives. And it may not be till after it, but when you realize the impact you've had for $200, you know, you, you could change multiple lives in some of the most conflicted countries on the planet. Well, asking the question, how many can you do? And it's not just about having a digital form of the Bible, because as Mike said early on in our conversation, if you have a digital Bible on your mobile device, you're leaving a footprint everywhere and people can trace you. So the physical book is not outdated. It's not the old technology. It's still the new technology, having a physical Bible. Let me encourage you, if you can make a donation for the end of financial year appeal for Open Doors, wonderful organisation, runs on the board, wonderful history. They produce the world watch list at the beginning of each year. They're monitoring developments in the persecution church around the world. And here's the website to make that donation, opendoors.org.au. My encouragement too might be to take advantage of the Uh, opportunities that are on there to have those prayer guides so you can pray more effectively for the persecuted church. Opendoors.org.au. Mike Gore is CEO of Open Doors Australia. Mike, thanks so much for a wonderful update today on 2020. No worries, Neil. Thanks for having us, and I really appreciate all of your listeners, all of your supporters. You know, you are a wonderful blessing to our ministry. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.